my comic book is probably what makes like a good quarter of the amount and then my other stuff makes the remainder amount. Welcome to the Inner Creator with Peter Sue, a podcast focused on helping creative entrepreneurs learn more about the art, business, and mindset of being a creator. If you're into art and business, I have a huge treat for you today. Today, we're gonna talk about how to make six figures as an artist, how to write and publish your own book, and how to grow your YouTube and Instagram audience to hundreds of thousands of followers. Today, I'm interviewing Michelle Lamb, AKA Mew Triple. She's an LA-based story artist that's worked with animation studios like Netflix Animations and the lead animator of The Little Mermaid. And she just published her book with Penguin Random House Knopf called Mish the Bad Demon, based on her experiences growing up as a Chinese American mixed into a fantasy world. And she's grown her YouTube audience to over 200,000 subscribers and her Instagram following to over 400,000 people based on telling her personal stories through her comics. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. And I'm excited to chat about everything. Taking it to the beginning. Um, we know you grew up in New York City. Like, What were you like as a kid? And did you have any childhood dreams? Well, when I was a kid, I obviously loved drawing. Every time I'm asked, like, when did you start drawing? I'm just like, I don't remember. I just remember my life just always drawing. There was no specific moment. So when I was a kid, I carried a magna doodle around, which is like that board where you just draw things and you can slide the little slider and erase it. Or I would just draw on like stapled pieces of paper together. And I would pass around comics to my friends and just force them to read it. So you know, when I was a kid, all I did was just watch cartoons, get inspired, then make little papered comic books and just pass it around. And I would repeat that cycle. And as I get older, that process, as you can see, has become more advanced. I know you have some videos where you talk about where you were drawing, like, and then your, like, how were your parents in, in supporting your, like, creativity so for the most part i will say my parents have been decently supportive they've actually haven't really ever given me a hard time really other than just being like okay you can pursue art but if you do pursue art you have to really like put in your all in it so i'm really grateful that i've had parents that are pretty supportive of my career path considering that i know a lot of like asian parents are not the most supportive about people pursuing artistic career paths but i think my mom she was someone that you know really also hustled in her life and i think my parents probably kind of regret a little bit not pursuing their own passions and they're pretty open about really not liking their jobs to me so I think for me and my sister they were like all right you guys can choose what it is you would like to pursue but whatever it is you have to like go hardcore in it so that's kind of how my career began and my mom was actually the one that was like oh Michelle there's this school called CalArts you should apply to it and I was just like okay so thanks to my mom I knew about CalArts existence because I was just like I don't know I'll just go to SVA in New York because that's here but my mom was the one that kind of opened the path of being like hey there's this school in California you should go there and I was like all right <laughs> I wish like I feel like my parents they, they're supportive but like anything with like music or creativity it, it's uh it's things that aren't as practical it, it's been a, like tough to communicate about so it's it's beautiful to see that you've been supported by your mom and your parents i think a lot of your audience your community they know you as like now a published author like Misha <laughs> bad demon i'm super oh excited to ask God. you more about this and <laughs> <Thank> uh <you. laughs> 
like people online probably know you have like a huge following, like 400,000 people are like following your Instagram comics, like where you personalize, you tell the personal stories about life, you have like 200,000 subscribers on YouTube and you kind of go through your artistic journey. But I know like in your videos, a pivotal part of how you kind of grew into what we, what we know and see today, what it happened at Cal Arts. Um, can you kind of take us through just, I guess at a high level, like what that journey was like? So going into Cal Arts. It was a journey because I grew up as a little teenager who always drew anime. Like I freaking loved anime. I refused to draw anything else, which, you know, honestly, anime is a big money maker now on the streaming platform. So, but I knew that to get into CalArts, I had to break out of that habit and start incorporating some Western styles because CalArts is founded by Walt Disney. They A lot of people who leave CalArts go to Pixar, Disney, or other like studios that primarily just create like Western animations. And, you know, I think my longest dream in life when I was a kid was to be a mangaka in Japan. But after growing up and becoming an adult and learning that that career path will not sustain you at all financially, I was like, well, I guess I will have to start drawing some Mickey Mouses. And I applied to CalArts. But when I did that, I had to really shut down that part of myself that drew anime just for a temporary time because I just needed to get into the school. And in order to do that, I had to show I was versatile in drawing like anything. Like you could draw Western, you could draw anime, you could draw realism, you can do life drawings. And they really want to see that you can just tell a story through your drawings. And a lot of the art I used to make was just for the sake of looking good, looking pretty, it looks cool. But now it's like got to really create narrative in your artwork. So that was kind of when I first got into the school. I had to kill that anime part of myself just temporarily. And once I got into the school, I was kind of trying to refine myself or rediscover myself as an artist because I think every art student, once they enter an art school, they're like, wow, I was the best artist in my neighborhood, but now I am in a pool of the best people from everywhere. And you just suddenly feel this wave of insecurity. And that kind of does like help you grow because it forces you to face that fact of life that you're really not like that special and you have to find what it is that is unique about yourself so after like my first two years and like learning a lot from being surrounded by my classmates and peers and instead of viewing people of that as like your competition you view them as like partners potential collaborators and whatnot then you form like friendships and relationships and then like towards the middle to end of my year of CalArts is when I was like you know what I like anime. I'm going to bring that back into my work. And I felt like by doing that and mixing everything that I've learned throughout school, it helped me create my best work. And I thought about like, you know, now that I have more confidence in my art skills again, I can think about what messages I like saying with my art. What do I want to impart on the younger generations? Or even just like, you know, a form of venting my own feelings. So that, that kind of happened when I made like my third year student film, which is about me just like, I guess, repairing the relationship with my mom or just me talking in my head about how to fix my relationship with my mom. And then once I graduated was when I was like, you know what, 
no one is watching me anymore. I'm just here working my animation job and I need something to do. So I started making comics just about my life. And I feel like just documenting my life, like a little diary book was what helped me find like, what things do I like to say? Like being a woman, being an artist and just somebody that just sometimes feels misunderstood. And I feel like those topics resonate with a lot of people, you know, around the like young adult age. So yeah. Is the character you? It's like me, but I always like have a separation between me and my cartoon self where it's like, yes, these experiences are inspired by my real life. But whenever you make a story or a fictional comic, you kind of have to either like change some things like change the pacing of when certain events happen, or kind of like bring in random other characters to support the idea you're saying. So I kind of am like, she's inspired by me, but she's not me so it's like she's just like uh, a br- like I'm the tree and she's the branch <laughs> one of them I saw was like you're like the your your comic cartoon character she's with her partner and then like like she has really bad breath and it was just like I was like whoa I've never seen like <laughs> I'm used to reading like the Sunday morning comics like Doonesbury and like stuff like that oh yeah and Dilbert and like but to see like someone in it felt like um like someone's Instagram post but like comic comic fight it was like whoa what? it's so like raw and like real well thank you I feel like that's the thing I like about comics is you can just express yourself without fully exposing yourself I'm just like I feel fine doing a comic about my stinky breath, my pubic hair, or I don't know, disgusting things about myself. But because it's like drawn in a drawing, I'm able to separate myself from it. And I'm just like, that's just a drawing. But you guys don't really know what my stinky breath in the morning smells like. It's crazy because when I was going back into your your work and just seeing your like BPA one, two, three, four films, just hearing what you talk about your story of like, was, that, was I think it was your first year you were kind of distancing yourself from art. It wasn't as fun. Is that right? And then like the second year, you're yeah. like working like crazy. Third year, you like started to have more of a, some personal life, but you and you just said, screw it, I'm going to do my own thing. And then is it is that when you created Endlessly, like the, the film with your mom? Yeah, so that's kind of how literally, I feel like, first of all, you did great research. Second of all, that was like a perfect analysis of what happened, where my first year, I felt like I really just had to make something that people want to see or like to see, or what is it that people like in a lot of, you know, these major films that get to people and usually it's like the sappy like ooh tearjerker things and I focused on that like I love a good tearjerker but that story wasn't really like that personal to me then my second year it started becoming a little bit more personal where it's just like oh I understand what it's like being a woman walking around New York City because that film was about catcalling and I rem- I used to work in New York City too as like a print design intern which was nothing that I ever really wanted to do but I was just like, I feel like I have something to say about this. But the story, of course, is totally fictional. Then the third year film is when I was just like, I'm literally going to make a story, like a magical realism film about me and my mom. And that was probably the most, the story that was the closest to like, oh, this is like literally my life kind of thing. Yeah, when I was watching it, I made me think of my mom and my parents and that struggle Kind of what we talked about like at the beginning of the conversation was like the struggle between parents wanting the best for their kid, the kid wanting to be independent, carve out their own path. And just to have that payoff at the end where she realizes how much her mom loves her 
and how much she loves her mom. I mean, yeah. that was like <laughs> I was I was feeling it. And and the crazy thing is, it's 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 one of those like pieces of like art and expression that made me feel something. But at the same time, then I looked at the YouTube view count. I was like, what the heck? There's like 1.7 million views. Oh my <laughs> like, god! It's, yeah, it's it's crazy because it's like you. It's personal. It's real, but it also resonated. Like you know, the whole personal universal thing. Like you, you hit it on the head. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you. Honestly, like I kind of regret using copyrighted music for all of my short films now because I was just like going back. If I just like used non-copyrighted music, I could have monetized those views or something. But I'm just like whatever. I felt like I did. The point of the film was to you know, reach out to people. And I'm really glad that it did. And I feel like that's the first step as an artist too, before like even thinking about monetization is you have to like think about your audience or just think about, you know, even yourself as an artist. So I feel like I'm really glad that the movie was really touching for people and, you know, resonated with others. You wanted to be a storyboard artist pretty early on at CalArts, mm -hmm. but like every year you couldn't get a storyboard internship like you worked at like cartoon network like dreamworks mm -hmm. right like yeah so you couldn't become a storyboard artist but, like i guess what was holding you back from from becoming a storyboard artist and then what allowed you to finally like get your foot in the door so i really think that what it came down to was my skills were probably not versatile enough yet where what I was showing in my storyboard portfolio was only like stuff that is based off of my student films, classwork. And I feel like when you are just putting work that you made for a class, there's just something about your art that is not really received like as well by recruiters or people who are looking at your work to hire. Because I feel like when students create like classwork, there's something about it that's not personal. And I feel like I was just putting student work in only because I was just like, well, it's work that I already made and it's work that I already put effort in. So it better get me a job when really I think the thing that people want to see is a bit of yourself as well as some versatility. So I think some of my work used to be too flat and in animation, people want to know if you're capable of doing like TV work or film and more cinematic work, which is usually like when you have more diverse camera angles, but TV is more, you have like maybe three to five cameras, like kind of when you have a sitcom, like when they film friends or some reality TV show, there's only so many cameras that they use, but in films, they have film they have like cameras placed anywhere in a set and they want to see that a little bit more in your work and I think when I was putting the student film work as my portfolio stuff I wasn't really showcasing that side because I was only focused on utilizing stuff I've already done but when I put that type of work in it's not really in the mindset of showing recruiters showing people who might hire me what my skills in life are I'm just showing stuff that I had to do to get a student film done so on top of that I felt very I was so introverted when I was like a student. I did not talk to anyone. I do not talk the way that I do right now to anyone else. I even actually had to rehearse my whole like Cartoon Network pitch because at the end, all interns got the chance to just pitch an idea to practice it. So 
I had Christine, who you previously interviewed, like, listen to me rehearse. And I used to just get on Skype when Skype was a thing and just rehearse my pitch and like speak as loud as I could and with as much enthusiasm in my voice. So I felt like that helped me break out of my public speaking fear a little bit. And then afterwards, I started to get more connections. I started becoming more friends with people who are in the industry. And I think a mixture of that, which is building connections and also just further refining my voice and, you know, showing a versatile number of skills in my portfolio in combination is what eventually helped me. But when I was a student, it was just showing too much of like, here's my classwork, hire me. <laughs> you, for the audience out there, can you just explain what a storyboard artist does like in a, like a quick, quick high level? Yes, of course. It's really like a storyboard artist basically takes the script of a film or a TV show and they basically transform that into the physical thing that you'll be seeing on screen. So you'll be given a script, probably like a portion of a film, or it's an episode of a TV show. And you basically have to draw it out kind of like panels of comics, because you're providing the blueprint of what is going to be happening on screen to the animation team or like visual development team. So you might draw the character in the background of a set or something like that. And you kind of will break down like, oh, this is the types of acting poses the character will have, or the character is going to move from this point of the screen to that point of the screen to convey this idea. So you're basically providing the blueprint as to what will eventually be going on the screen that you will be watching. Got it. And that's, that's just for animation or for movies as well, like live action? Yeah, so I think it also is the same for live action, although I do not know many people who work in the live action space. I know of some, but I feel like with live action, sometimes people just need a shot list and not a storyboard artist. Because in animation, I think you need more specification on like, what is the character doing in this scene? Are they like flying off into space or are they like crying or are they doing something? And normally the storyboard artist helps like really specify and draw out those moments so that when it's passed on to animation, they know exactly what to do. But I think in live action, they have a lot more room for spontaneity where, you know, they'll be given a script, but like they'll end up doing other things out of the blue and it will work still. So yeah. Kind of crazy. Like you went through that whole journey to find your voice and then your portfolio, you started to shape it more. You personalized it versus kind of just doing what you like. I, for me, when I was watching your videos, it sounded like you were doing what a lot of students do. We like fill out the form, but we don't really know the function. But then when you got down more to the function, you started telling your own stories through your own comics. So can you take us through from, from when you're writing your own comics, you were unemployed, you were looking for an art job, like what happens next and how did how did you make it happen? So how I landed my first job was basically taking my original student portfolio and I just discarded it. I was like, you are no longer of use to me. Thanks for existing for the time that you needed to. But I need to make a portfolio that represents me as an artist a little bit more. So I had like 
a pretty good amount of free time after graduating because I had no work, no job. This was pre-book, pre-YouTube, pre-anything. So I had a lot of time to just be like, all right, I'm just going to restart my portfolio and ditch whatever I had. And I only made pieces that were inspired by some element of my life, whether if it was my friendships, my relationship with like my sister and my family or just like my grandparents. And I focused on those stories. And I tried to keep in mind a lot of the advice I got from any of the rejections I got. So one of the major ones, which was from Disney was always like, Oh, try to keep it looser, try to create more rough drawings. So I tried to really embrace that and make less clean artwork, which honestly was great because I spend less time having to refine things. So when I was working on my portfolio, I just made stories that were purely inspired by my life. And I drew them in a style that was more expressive and loose. And that ultimately eventually got me my first job with Glenn Keane Productions. And for any of you who don't know Glenn Keane, he was like the original animator of like The Little Mermaid and a lot of the major Disney Renaissance films. And he started his own studio and he was creating his son was creating trash truck which was a preschool show at netflix so that was the first job that i eventually got picked up on after discarding my old portfolio and starting a new one got it so you worked for the the studio where the animator that did little mermaid that's crazy i know well, like <laughs> yeah so you're you're animating you're working for glenn Keane, and then it's like netflix and then you start you start getting more and more projects um and i know you became you went from being a storyboard artist to now an assistant director mm -hmm. Can you take us through just uh, how you then got your book deal? Yeah. And how you went from getting the book deal to the whole writing, editing process to <laughs> to today, to having like yeah. a, a book oh that God. people can read. That's I'm going to so give this to weird. my nine-year-old niece. Like oh it's God, so, it was yay. such a cool read. Can you take us through that, that process for anyone that's out there, whether they're a creator, they want to write a book? Like how did that whole like high level of that process work? So basically, when I was working at Glen Keane Productions as a revisionist, that was my first job, you have a kind of a lot of time just because, okay, maybe not as a revisionist, I would say as a revisionist, you're a little bit more busy because you're on call where people are like, Oh, we need you to fix this, we need you to fix that. So scratch what I said. But as a storyboard artist, I got promoted later on to storyboarding. As a storyboard artist, you kind of have a little bit more free time to like make up your own schedule because the way it works is they'll just give you a script and they'll be like, here's the script. And then you'll walk through like what the directors or creator is looking for for this episode. So you'll pretty much be given like a week or two to get through your first pass or rough storyboard pass. And, you know, sometimes you'll finish early. Sometimes you don't really need that amount of time and it gives you the time to just do your own thing or just brainstorm about what you want to do with your life. And I have a lot of mental energy after work, especially if I start my day early and I get a lot of work done and I'm just like, all right, now what? So I made Instagram comics during that time and that's how I was eventually discovered by my editor who found the comics I was doing, which was also gaining followers at during Instagram's prime time. And now it's, you know, not in its prime time. But my editor found me through that. And she asked me, do you want to make a middle grade graphic novel? And I was just like, oh, yeah. But at first I was like, Nah, I just started my animation job. This is what I want to do with my life. And then a 
I asked if I could get back to her later. She's like, that's fine. So a few months have passed. And then I was ready to, you know, take on this author journey now. So I reached out back to her and I was like, hey, I think I'm ready to like start thinking about a graphic novel. And then from that point onward, I found an agent. And then while I was working in animation, we would also be working on this book deal, like kind of like on my offline hours or like, you know, going to work or just during lunch or something, I would just get emails back and forth from my agent. And we would just be talking about the book deal. And the great thing about having an agent is they're very familiar with the world of publishing, assuming that they're very experienced. So they kind of can tell you what's a good deal, a bad deal, and what is going to work in your favor. And I was basically like just getting on calls with her, like, like kind of literally while I was at work or it's like during a lunch break or something, she'll just call me and we'll just hop on calls and discuss that. And then once all the parts of the contract, you know, were fair on both me and the publisher's behalf, we're like, all right, we got a book deal. And then you start working on the book and the way that oh, and, I kind and, uh, of just to, just to jump in real quick. like, like, so up to this point, is that normally how you get a book deal? Like you're just putting out great work people love it and then an editor is the one that's like hey this has like market potential is that kind of, or say, do you find an agent first and then get a publishing deal like so there's a lot of different ways that it could happen i think the way that it happened for me is not going to happen for everyone i really think the stars just aligned and i feel really lucky that my editor reached out to me first just because i don't think I think if she never reached out to me, I wouldn't have considered making a book. And I was kind of just like, honestly, during that time in my life, I had this glorification about working in animation. And I was like, oh, animation, films, movies, TV shows are great. And I didn't really think of books the same way. But little did I know that nowadays, a lot of films and TV shows are picking up on IP work, which are books graphic novels, games. And it's just like, oh, I underestimated the publishing industry. So I'm really glad that I took up on that opportunity. But for those of you who don't, you know, get reached out by an editor immediately, you can still look for an agent and just basically show them your body of work. Why do you think you're like worth being represented and having a book out? And I think that for the most part, it's not that difficult to land on an agent because there are a lot out there. It's just finding the one that is going to be the best fit for you and making sure that they take like, you know, a fair amount of commission from you and not like taking advantage of you. And they've had work before with authors and artists that you have liked or admired. So. Got it. And, and is it like, if I remember correctly, you said like an agent, a fair cut is like, they usually take 10 to 15%. Yeah. Like 10 to 15 is usually a normal amount. And then usually with like foreign rights or something like that, it might be a little bit higher, like 20 to 25, but that's usually like with that's if your book gets a deal in another country or something. Got it. Got it. And that's, that's like the revenue, like not profit. Yeah. That's like the, okay. And, yeah. and how many, how many followers on Instagram do you have? when this all happened because you have 400,000 now like that's crazy. oh yeah like how many was like yeah so when I first got the book deal I only had like a hundred thousand and I very specifically remember it because I remembered a lot of artists 
still sometimes make posts being like, thank you for 10,000 followers, like as a gratitude thing for their followers, which is like great. And I made one for the 100K mark. And that was like the only one I ever did because afterwards I was just like, all right, I can't keep doing this. So (laughs) I remember that around that time period was when my editor reached out to me. But I also think it's because she saw my portfolio because so it was a mix of my Instagram, but then she also saw my portfolio that I applied for animation where she's like, I really like this one piece you did in your portfolio. And I think it would make like a great like middle grade graphic novel idea, even though that was not the idea that I ended up publishing. But it was like, this is why I think sharing your work online or just making yourself very easily discoverable opens you up to a lot of opportunities. Wow. I was like, so it's like, you you were putting your work out there, built a huge audience. Like 100,000 people is a lot on Instagram. And then yeah. it resonated. One piece resonated a lot with the editor. And then you, so now you have your, you got an agent, you pitched the ideas. And so how did you get the, what was the process to sign with Penguin um, Random House? Not like, because yeah. yeah, that's like the, the publisher we all saw in all our books growing up. Like, how did you kind of get that publishing deal? Honestly, like, I swear it was just like, first, I think it was just stars aligned once again. I don't think it's every day that an editor from a big five publishing house comes to you and is like, hey, you want to make a book for us? And I was stupid for, well, thank God I eventually took on that, you know, offer. But at first when I rejected it, I was just like, looking back at that version of myself, I'm like, girl, are you stupid? (laughs) But I do think that the contracting part was, I wasn't that deeply involved with it. It was mostly, again, my agent, who was very involved in that element. I don't really even understand a lot of contracting terms to this day. I'm trying to get better at understanding the terms of contracts and like reading it and looking at the clauses more refinedly, I guess. But again, it was really my agent who would she would get like the first draft of the contract of what this publishing house is offering me and she would go through all the details and point out to me what she likes and what she does not like. And she'll run it through me to see how I feel about it. And I trust her because I'm like, you have so much more experience. I did not go to school for publishing. I went to school for animation to create the art, not look through legal terms. So I know my agent, I don't think she is a lawyer, but she is able to still look at the terms and fully understand what they mean. So, and if she does not understand anything too, she'll like reach out to like other agents or like people that are better versed in that area. So that's why, again, I highly encourage people to get a really good agent because if you don't get an agent, you'll just waste so much time looking up what everything means in these clauses. And usually the publishing house will kind of know that, you know, you're not, you know, experienced and they might take advantage of you thankfully mine didn't from what at least what I know of so yeah yeah. so there's back and forth for like kind of a few months and then afterwards finally you'll land on a deal and then that's great and you celebrate and then a few months after you'll get like your first advance payment from just like literally just signing this contract you'll get like a lump sum of payment which was extremely helpful for my financial journey (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so you get the advance like and just high level, uh, without going into details, like what what does like a, 
a typical book deal look like? So basically, when you first sign a book deal, you'll get an advanced payment just for initiating this process. But for graphic novelists like me, you probably will also have like milestone payments where it will be listed out in your contract where it's going to say, this is how much you're going to get for signing the deal. This is how much you're going to get for finishing the rough sketches. This is how much you're going to be getting for finishing the manuscript, which is like getting the book fully colored, line arted, and all the text is in there and it's approved. And then here's another lump sum of payment you'll get once your book is actually published and released. So based on how fast you're able to finish or work on your book, you will receive those payments like based on whenever you make those deliverables. And usually from this is from my experience with publishing so far, it might not be the same for everyone. But the schedule has been pretty flexible where like the 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 original schedule date for Mish on the contract is not the same as when it was actually released. Because I think based on when the contract was made, it was like during COVID and we thought it would happen a little mm. bit earlier. Originally, I think Mish was scheduled to launch in 2022, but now it's like 2023, but nobody has said anything and nobody cares. So I was just like, <laughs> I'll take what I will and I will run with it. And it did help me with like, you know, managing my work life balance where I don't feel like I'm killing myself, but I don't, I wouldn't say that all publishers are like this. I just think I had a very special case scenario. Got it. Got it. So, so book deal, it's like you get, you get the advance, you get paid upon certain milestones. Uh, and then once you sell, like complete the book, is it like you get a percentage of the sales, like, like a back end kind of thing? Yeah, so you will eventually make royalties based on when your book makes up the amount that the publisher originally paid you through the advance. So it's kind of like your book has to earn back what the publisher paid you for the book itself before you get royalties. So if you yeah. are an author, that's why I think it's really good to just keep promoting yourself, keep promoting your book, and eventually it should hopefully make back the sales that will equal the advance payment. But I unfortunately, I do think that a lot of artists or authors might not make that payment back. But I feel like that's why <laughs> some like, I feel like we can't always trust publishers to market your book for you. Because honestly, I do think that there's a hierarchy in any system where they're like, oh, big name authors, like, you know, people who like, who published Diary of a Wimpy Kid or something or Captain Underpants, like these are big name graphic novels, they'll probably be prioritizing authors like that where they'll be promoting the heck out of these authors. Whereas, you know, debut authors or authors that are not as popular might not get that same level of marketing. So for me, like even with me, with the original marketing plan, there were some things that were like, at first they're like, oh, we're going to put you on all of these book tours and do all of this. And then once COVID happened, they're like, uh, maybe we won't do these book tours. <laughs> I don't know. But now that COVID has kind of, you know, dissipated a lot more, you know, my agent was more like, oh, I think we should, you know, have more of these clauses back, but not everything is really promised. So you have to do a lot of the marketing on your end to make sure that your book, you know, makes back the money that your publisher paid you. But it's also like, even if you don't make that money back, at least you still got the advance, you know? Got it. Got it. So it sounds like it's a lot like a music album. Like you get the advance and then yeah. if, you make, if you sell enough copies of your album, then you start getting the gravy, the royalties on top. Like, yeah. Well, before we, before, like, bef for the marketing, um, how did you, like, what, what would you say were like the biggest levers for like 
getting getting your marketing out there because I I know I, when I was a musician in LA, you know me my friends we would spend like years making an album <laughs> like for me I think it took me like two years three wow. <laughs> like but then people have a release show and then like kind of everyone shows up and then you kind of never hear about the album again like I would see that a lot with my friends like so I learned that making the music the album the product is like the first half and then the second mm -hmm. half is the marketing like for you yes. and your book like what's been helpful for you uh yeah to build that the, the oh my god that is like very true i think music and book industries have a lot in common it's just like the differences one is you hear one is you look so i think with making a book it's very similar with okay first you once your book releases that's when you get the most sales because you do a pre-sale release where you kind of let people know that your book is going to be coming out and you link them to a pre-sale link which is where people will start reserving you know their orders so that the moment that your book comes on sale it, they will just be shipped the book on that day so i think that that was when i got the most sales on my book but over time, like it's kind of depressing sometimes to look at your, I guess, author portal and you just see that line like slowly decrease, but that's kind of the reality. But in general, the way that you kind of at least maintain it or like plateau it. So it's like, at least you're still getting like a consistent number of sales, even though it's not going to be as much as the pre-sale day is just continuously mentioning it on my social media, which is why I have like my YouTube and Instagram. And even though like people hate social media, I'm just like, I, we need this to survive as artists where, you know, every time I finish making a comic or a post, I will then like kind of link people to my book at the end, or I'll occasionally shout it out in YouTube videos or when I can make content surrounding my book, like how I made a book or blah, blah, blah. And just kind of like insert my book when it's kind of appropriate. It's kind of like me sponsoring sponsoring myself but instead of the sponsor it's like my book is sponsoring this video so I'll find like moments where it's appropriate to be like okay today I'm going to talk about how to make money from publishing a book but because I'm making a video about publishing a book it makes so much more sense to be like and this is my book if you want to buy it check it out in the links below so I try to create content that's relevant around it to you know kind of promote it and I do feel like every time I shout it out or remind people that it exists you know even just like a few number of sales helps a lot yeah so yeah got it so it's like you're leaning on the, on like those 400,000 people on Instagram <laughs> like 200,000 yeah. on YouTube and it's like working well like yeah I feel like you're it, just from following your work like you're it seems like you're so good at social media but before we get into that I want to ask like with with like Mish the Bad Demon, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wish I would had a little stand. I could just hold it up here during the interview. But like, can you tell us like the creative process? Like, what was the the inspiration for Mish? Um, even the title, like, how did yeah. you design the characters? How did you figure out the story? Like, did you start with the end and then you kind of worked it out, or did you kind of do it scene by scene till you got to an ending? Like, how did that how did that play out? So I will say that working on Mish has definitely been a learning experience and. I feel like I could create a much better book today, but whatever. I I made this book when I was a lot younger, like even though it came out in 2023, I technically made it when I was like 22 or 23 or something. And that was like four years ago now. So when I made the book, I just wanted to make a story about a demon girl 
going through life some way or another. And I did not have that clear of an idea yet because I think I was just so focused on just like, I just need to make a book. I just need to get something out. And that is a good strength to have as an artist because I do think you need to have that you know, mindset of just getting things done so that you can live and survive. But I think now looking back, I would have spent more time, you know, working on the story and really digging through it. But when I was writing the story originally, I was like, I just want a girl, a demon girl to learn to love herself in some way, shape or form. So I put her through this fantastical journey, which had a lot more world building than I originally anticipated. And I was like, wow, I did not expect to draw this many characters. And for my next book, there will definitely be less characters for sure. So I think that was my little like, I don't know. That's what I learned from my mistakes, but I wouldn't really call it a mistake either because I think you know, it worked out great. So I think when I worked on Mish, I wanted to just focus on a character's arc, a character's journey, and I just wanted it to somewhat mirror what it's like being a girl or being someone who was misunderstood. And this also happened when COVID happened and with the whole like Asian hate crime situation mm -hmm. happened. And I, even though the book is not directly about it, I, I wanted to kind of mirror some of the faults of our society. So I wanted to kind of briefly talk about that without fully, you know, being like, this is an Asian American story, because just a little bit of a rant, but I think one of my pet peeves about, you know, Asian Americans getting into the creative space is like, everybody just wants you to talk about, talk about your trauma, talk about your hurdles as an Asian American immigrant, which is great. I love stories like that. And I think those stories are needed to be told. But I don't like how the industry only wants those types of stories from Asian Americans. I think, yeah. you know, people should be empowered to just talk about like whatever. Like, you know, yeah. there's a film called Nomad Land by Chloe Zhao, who basically just made a story about, you know, these elderly communities living out of their RV vans and it has nothing to do with being Asian. But I think, you know, if people want to truly support Asian American creators, you should allow them to just create whatever they want, like make a story about cats in space or something. So that was just kind of like my little thing with Mish, where I was like, I just want to make a story about a demon girl going through life. And it doesn't need to be like that deep, but it still like has some deep elements to it. I just did not need it to fully, you know, reflect my traumas of life. Yeah. I remember when I, when I, was in LA as a musician and uh, I started talking to blogs and tr trying to like get, drum up press for my music. And then I, I was just talking about my songs, right? And then people are like, so how does it feel to be an Asian American writing songs? And I, I'm like, yeah. what? I thought I was just talking about like the chords and, and the melodies and the lyrics and the themes. <laughs> like, yeah. And it, it felt, um, it's an interesting like dichotomy. It's like on one hand, it's cool because people are actively trying to support Asian Americans, mm -hmm. creatives, which, you know, were typically underrepresented in arts and entertainment, especially in LA. It's like, especially like for, as a songwriter, I walk into a bar, like when I went to Nashville, I think I was like the only Asian guy. So it's like, oh my God. I felt people looking at me because it seemed like maybe people weren't used to seeing like a guy that looks like me playing yeah. guitar singing. Yeah. So it's, it's cool that you were able to just tell a story and, but you drew upon just who you are. And so when, you know, the, the people that have the lava, like the fair, like the, 
the demons get kind of colonized by the <laughs> fairies yeah. and then there's like this this kind of conflicted past but through you know nuna and mish they're able to work it out like i was like oh man this is like yeah it was it was amazing just to see how you kind of yeah. work in these deep themes for for like middle school students and yeah yeah ultimately the goal was i wanted to discuss some of the serious matters in society but i didn't want to have it like literally be like just portraying literally like the people like asians or something it's just like oh they're demons they're fairies this could be anyone so hopefully when you look at this book it's not like i'm targeting specific demographics within our current day world it's more like looking at a fictional fantasy world and you can see how different things can just symbolize things so but yeah i totally agree with you on the whole like thing where it's just like I feel like if you want to respect me as an Asian American creator, like just let us create the things that we want to create and not only limit us to just talking about, you know, just our struggles of immigration only. Like, I think they're totally valid stories to have, but just not limiting it to that only. I, I remember when, uh, when I was, when uh, Mish goes to the land, Plumeria, the land of the fairies, and she sees, she doesn't look like, princess nuna who's a fairy like she doesn't look like everybody else like i thought of i thought of my nine-year-old niece and i was like man like she like she probably goes through that like yeah not fitting in she doesn't look like the people she sees on tv but then i loved when her grandma misha's grandma was like it's good it's actually a good thing to be different and then i'm not going to spoil the ending but because she's different she's able to like (laughs) save the day so like um it was just I just love that story. Like did you did you start with the ending and then work to it though or did it come by piecemeal? I think that the ending came a little bit later, which is something I would recommend figuring it out first. So, I knew at the end I did want a positive like ending cuz it is middle grade and you do have to cater some of the story decisions based on that like you can't make things as dark as some young adult books so there was already that it was like I knew it had to like be encouraging inspiring and like uplift like middle grade girls so that's how I knew like the ending is going to be around that but I did not know the technical method of like what they're going to do to save the day or what tools or what character decisions are going to be made yet but I think that is something that all authors should definitely figure out if they're ever going to come up with a book idea but I think for me the premise of a demon girl loving learning to love herself was my what the forefront of my mind was when I was creating it and just having the characters you know be inspired by like my friends because Nuna is inspired by my friend Noor who's also a story artist and she also is coming up with a book soon and I have like my cousins who inspired Xavier because he was kind of like my bully as a kid and just my grandma was my grandma so I have like these things that I felt like I was just like I just need to have a story that is inspired by my life even though it's not necessarily my life but just inspired by it and then maybe i could move on to like some other story idea later and how long did it take you to go get finish the rough draft and then to finish the final draft for the rough sketches i think it took around a year or so and 
When it got to the final draft, that was probably another year. So the total of actually working on Niche Book One was around two years, but it's more like one and a half. I feel like if I took away my full time animation job, it could have been a lot faster. But I, I don't think I honestly don't think it's possible for me to just live off of making a book only. So. A lot of it is just like me just working on the off hours of my full-time animation job and just working on my book. And that took around one and a half years. But I think if I just had like the whole year to myself to just work on this book, it could have been done in one year. But, you know, that, that's why people got to start paying comic artists more if they want it done faster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this stuff takes like just seeing your process of drafting the thumbnails and then out like outlining revising and then coloring it in shading on top of actually telling a good story it's like yeah. it's like oh my gosh this is crazy yeah. like There's it's so lot. much goes into it well yep with can so shifting gears like you so you wrote the book you've been you've been working at studios like like glenn keen and netflix so a big a I think one of the really cool things i noticed on your channel is that you're very open about talking about money and finances mm -hmm. And when you, when I think of art, I don't usually, I think a lot of people don't think of money, like art and money as a thing. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's just so cool that you're so good at your art, but you're also good at making money and oh like, my. and you're savvy about it, you know? So I know you have your video where you talk about how you made over $200,000 last year from, mm -hmm. from all your art. Can you kind of take us through for the listeners out there, whether they're budding artists, um, creators, like how, how does that 200 K like, how does that break apart roughly? Yeah. So definitely I think money is just an important thing that artists should learn because just going back to the root of why I guess I'm like this, like, why do I, why do I care about money even? Cause I feel like money is kind of this taboo topic that a lot of people, not even just artists, like anyone is just like, Oh God, don't talk about that. That like, I don't know. But for me, I like living my life. And I remember specifically this moment during my Disney internship, I was walking back from lunch with, you know, one of the animators that have been there, another story artist that has been there for like years. And he told me like, you know, you can't make life without living life. And I just agreed with that because I was just like, I love living my life. I love hanging out with friends. I love going on vacation. I love traveling. I love being able to have experiences. And to have those things like, yeah, you do need to make money. And animation in general is one of the more stable art jobs out there, but it still is pretty nomadic of a career path where you'll be like, you know, full time as an employee for maybe like one and a half to two years for a TV show or something. But then after that, you're kind of left on your own to like find the next gig. That part is not really like helped by anyone else other than the community that you build for yourself. So that always made me really nervous, especially after that whole like being unemployed and then having to find a job after I graduated. I really just hated that feeling of just being like, oh, I don't know how to support myself. I don't know how to like just be comfortable in this position. So 
after I started, you know, working at Glen King Productions, that's when I was doing Instagram, going on social media, getting sponsorships and just starting my book deal, which, you know, does pay you and stuff. So I was focusing on like, what are ways that I can just support myself making money outside of just animation. So that's how my book deal eventually came into play. And when I was, you know, growing on social media, that's when I was getting reached out to by sponsors and doing all of these things on YouTube. And then YouTube also generates like, AdSense and stuff. So I was thinking about like, what are all the ways? So I was just like, there's an Etsy shop idea, there's Patreon, there's YouTube, there's all of these things. And it's very overwhelming to think about. But that's why when I was just a revisionist with just like nothing else to do, I would just like watch videos just teaching myself how to do these things because I had nothing else to do. So basically, from all of that, I would say that working in animation still is like takes up more than like, it takes more, probably like a third of like what I make totally. But then my comic book is probably what makes like a good quarter of the amount. And then my other stuff makes the remainder amount. And that amount that I make that is not in animation is what helps cushion those time periods of gaps between looking for jobs and like signing on to your next animation project. The first time that I was like, really just like, you know, I have no job and I'm kind of like living my fun employment life was after I finished my assistant director job at Tonko House. And I had three months to just focus on, you know, my book or YouTube and do whatever I wanted. So during that time, I was just living off of like my book milestone payment, but I didn't feel like I was like financially suffering. I was like, I'm still going like traveling and living my life. I'm going back to New York and affording this time to visit my family. And it was just like something that I really enjoy doing. And I'm not like the type of person either who's like, I'm going to quit my full-time job and just freak animation like I actually enjoy working in animation like yeah I don't think that my jobs working in animation are my baby they're not me but they are what helps me you know continue learning as an artist and I have a lot of friends and connect connections and community in that industry that kind of helps me feel supported and feel like I have some sort of community but it's also just like liberating to know that I don't need to like land on a job immediately after one ends and like you know mm -hmm. even if I need to take a year off I don't feel like I'm like after like calling like my health insurance and everything I I found out that like I could just take a year off if I wanted to and just maybe just live off of my book and maybe like any other future book deals and just whatever I make on social media so I feel like for me that sort of liberation just comes from knowing that I have a choice, yeah. not so much that like, oh, I, it's either I quit my job and only work on my own stuff or I only work for my job. But I just feel like I'm just like, hey, I can co come here when I want to. I can go here when I want to. And that's just what I enjoy about being able to do all of these various things. It reminds me like this one of my old VC partners, he told me that if you have one option, <laughs> then you have none. <laughs> and yeah. so it's it's really cool to hear how you have many options, like whether it's your animation job, your book, all your other side hustles. Like, and I know you 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 talk about like in one video where you had 10, 10 streams of income, like Etsy, Gumroad, Patreon, YouTube, Instagram, your animation job, your book, like a lot of different things. But now you streamlined it into like three things. Like if someone was, if there's like an artist, like a new artist today, like if they only could do three streams of income, what would you recommend so that they can 
if they wanted to focus? Okay. Well, obviously there are a lot of artists out there in the world. So I will just assume that people who are interested in following a similar career path are like, you know, animation, comics, like storytelling types of art. Cause I feel like that usually has more like somewhat of a stable, like sort of income thing. But I would say definitely just in terms of the side hustles only, I would say do YouTube, do a book and do Patreon because I kind of ignored Patreon for a long time, but I just recently started it again. And I started doing like email consultations because I feel like I would drain my energy if I did like calls all the time. And Patreon is a little bit more stable than doing things like opening an Etsy shop and it's like, oh, now you got to promote your products and keep making products to promote your shop and that gets kind of exhausting but I think if you have a YouTube you can monetize like yourself like teaching people about your journey or showing your work and just you get AdSense and that in itself is very helpful for just providing like you know financial cushions and that can open up to sponsorships and then the book deal I think is really helpful for people who just want to have like publication or just a traditional form of their work and you don't even need to be like a comic artist you could be someone making a picture book you could also just write a a regular novel without pictures or write about your memoir if you have like some sort of credible career and you know I've read books by people who are not like these A-list celebrities either so I think like that is really helpful in getting like large sums of payments and then the YouTube works in tandem to just be like I'm making money through my YouTube talking about stuff but I can also promote my book and I grew a following Mm -hmm. here so that helps a lot and then the Patreon is really helpful with people who want to choose to support you and you have a place for all of the things that kind of go unseen, like behind the scenes stuff and exclusive access. And it's also the place where I find like, I'll at least have more consistent like payment through that than doing like an Etsy store where, you know, I have to like ship stuff out to people and just like, it gets really annoying. And I, I, I love like packing orders, but when it becomes like 50 orders, I'm just like, is this my life? Am I just going to be doing this forever? If someone wants to write a book, then they don't have, you know, 400,000 followers on Instagram. Like how, how would they get it marketed? Like, Any advice there? That's a question from Azul. So I do think that it is kind of hard in this day and age where social media is such a growing industry. And I will say that it kind of is necessary. But if you don't have a place to start off from, I would say go to Reddit and go to the book community or like the community that the niche of your book is in and promote it there. And you want to rely on like communities that already exist somewhere else. I'm not familiar with Facebook groups, but like Reddit is a place, maybe a discord group that's like of publishers or books or people that are artists, just places where there's an existing community, promote yourself and your work there. But Also, while doing that, I would encourage you to still try to grow your own platform just because I know it's really annoying in this day and age to hear about followers, likes, blah, blah, blah. I hate it myself. I wouldn't, if like, if that wasn't a requirement, I wouldn't be doing it. But I do feel like you need to have it so that, you know, you can't always rely on your publisher. Your publisher isn't going to do everything for you, even though they make it sound like they will. So that's why it's, you have to rely on yourself and just, you know, promote stuff on your own platform if you can. Got it. Got it. So if, if you if you don't have it, try to leverage other existing communities yes. like Reddit. But at the end of the day, 
try to build your own audience. Yeah. Okay. Like <laughs> yeah. just do those things together mm-hmm. if you don't have a following. <laughs> Got it. And, and kind of like for you as an artist that's super good with money, and this is something I struggle with, I know a lot of creator friends struggle with, is how do you balance making your art for yourself, like self-expression, making it for the audience? Like sometimes it's like, it feels yeah. like it's for, for you, for me, or for the audience, like self-expression fun or like money, like stability. Like how do you balance or integrate those? Because I think that's something that I think a lot of us struggle with. Yeah. Well, if you want the honest answer, I don't think I've made art for myself in like a long time, but I kind of don't mind it. It really depends on who you are because some artists still want to make art for themselves and purely non-monetized whatsoever. And that's fine. I just think for me, I kind of got to a point in life where I'm okay with art just kind of being a thing that I just use to make money and just be my career and job. But I found hobbies outside of it that I'm interested in now. Like I really love just traveling and like looking up places and like just geeking out over different like countries and places. And I love hiking and just like going out and living my life. But I think this comes from the fact that when I was little, I made a lot of art because that was me expressing what I wanted to do with my life. Like I used to make stories about like friends going on adventures in the forests. Well, guess what? Now I have the time to go literally live my life and go hang out with my friends in the forest. So I think for me, I've just found other interests that outside of art that I want to do now, which is why I'm like, I'm okay with just doing art as like my job. And I just do this and stuff like my Instagram comics or my books kind of are what I want to do. Like there is a compromise in it because you're still serving an audience, but it's still stemmed at least from like, this is an idea I want to do. Like 75% of it will at least be me. And then 25% of it will be like serving the audience demographic or serving whatever the audience wants. So I'm like fine with that because I do want my art to reach out to people and for it to reach out to people, you do have to understand that it's going to have to serve their interests. So yeah. Mm, Super helpful answer. So it's, is it fair to say it's like for your animation job, that's more of like, I'm, I'm creating to spec uh, for the market, the audience, they're paying me for it and it affords me like a great life that I can do whatever I want. And, yeah. and then for your book, it's it's it sounds like it's more you, but there's still that aspect of the audience because you want that connection. Yeah, I do think, yeah, whenever I make Instagram comics, I try to like target specifically to what they would be interested in. It's also still something I would want to do because at least there's no directors, there's no executives really telling me, make this comic about blah, blah, blah. So I feel like that in itself is very liberating to me. So the fact that, you know, now it's really just like making something that will reach out to the audience, I'm definitely okay with that compromise. And then with the book, I feel like the reason that I'm more able to put myself into it is because you no one is going to see your work for like a year or two and you don't get that gratification of somebody seeing your work like you do with an Instagram comic where it's like, oh, I finished this in one week, I post it and then immediately like, 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 comment, comment, comment. And with your book, it's just like, you just have two years of silence and just talking to your editor <laughs> and you're just like, well, if it's going to be like this, I better like the book that I'm working on. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. It totally reminds me of music albums. You spend like two years or you make a 15 second TikTok. Do you ever 
draw or like paint just for yourself and you don't show anyone like or is mostly is your stuff like going to be shown to people most of my stuff is going to be shown to people like i actually okay i think the only place where i have work that nobody sees is when i keep a sketchbook of me brainstorming the ideas but it's like me braining brainstorming the ideas for it to intentionally be shown to people but like even <laughs> this is like it's true toxic capitalism but it's like even with those behind the scenes i then post it on my patreon and i'm just like here look at the behind the scenes so I don't think I've created art that nobody has seen. But again, I feel like I've just gone to a place in life where I'm just okay with like, I don't really care, I guess. Like, I'm happy that people get to see my work. I'm happy that I get to live my life. And I don't feel like I've been suffering in any way from this so far. So I'm just like, you know, it's been fine for me. I love spending time with my cats and having the time to afford being able to do so. I mean, I went through this as a musician going through the starving artist phase and it was like, I mean, it's, it's very tough when you're not making much money and, but you're expressing yourself. Like personally, I'd probably give my personal success like an eight, nine, but like external success, financial success. It was like, oh, two, one. Oh so it was hard. It was really hard. So it's it's cool to see that you found that balance. Like, is it fair to say like when you're like when you're drawing now or you're making a draw with me on your YouTube, like would you say you're pretty close to that in that Venn diagram that you talk about of like what you like and what the audience likes? Would you say you're pretty close to that intersection for the most part? I think so, because for the most part, I kind of just draw in whatever style I want to, but it's more about like the content of what I'm drawing about, if it will resonate with the audience. Like one of my latest comics was about having acne, because a lot of people, you know, get like acne and it can be a huge insecurity for them. Like I grew up having it. And it's a topic that, you know, if... I had all the freedom in the world and all the money and just whatever in the world. Would I have made a comic about that? Probably not. But because I kind of know that it's a topic that other people might resonate with, and I have resonated with it myself. So it's kind of like an outlet for me, but other people will also find some comfort and solace in it. So it's kind of like we're just sharing this thing. And just Mm. me putting the effort and labor into creating the comic is like the only work. But for me, it's more satisfying because I'm like, you know, I understand this pain. And it kind of does bring me happiness to know that maybe this could help someone else out there or bring like awareness to this topic that a lot of people don't really like talking about. So yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot. The yeah, yeah no, 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 no. I love it. It just sounds like it's you're, you're, you're like, you found that common ground topic wise. And then aesthetically, it's like, you, it's like your own thing. So it's, it's, it's like a beautiful blend. It seems like when you talk about your personal life, like when I think about writing a book or something, I'm always afraid, or even when I wrote, when I write songs, I'm afraid of like, Oh, if I kind of do that, I don't know how to pronounce it, the Roma Clef, like you're like talking about your own life. And then like, there's a song about like a really, a really yeah. bad friend did this thing. Like, or like, oh, how, how yeah. did you get over or how do you approach writing about your life? Especially when it, 
includes other people. So definitely, that's why I'm just like, well, the great thing about making comics is you can make everybody a fictional character. You can totally change like this person's appearance, change their whole identity and like, you know, not even make like if there was like a guy in my life I was dealing with, like maybe I'll change him to like, you know, either look completely different or I could make it about a friendship and turn it into a girl or something. I mean, it's just you could do a lot to distort the identity when you're drawing the person. But I know like if you're singing a song or writing about them, it could be very more obvious. But I would say that I, for the most part, just again, shift their identity totally. And there were even some situations that I had with my friends that I was like, Hey, can I write a story about this? But like, the point is not to paint them in a bad light. I kind of changed the narrative to what I learned from the situation more so than making be like, this is a bad thing that they did in our friendship or some shit like that. So. Got it. Got yeah. it. It's more about um, you and the lesson learned. How long did it take you to create like pebbles? Like how long does it take to create like an animation? Is that like a whole oh year process? <laughs> I think that took around 10 months in school. Cause I know cause going to school is around 10 months so if I was in school for 10 months in my last year of CalArts, that definitely took around 10 months. But I do think that it could be 11 to 12, depending on how early you start thinking about it. Because some people think about their student films over the summer break and they're just brainstorming. So that kind of goes into the time counted into working on it. So that by the time you start school, you're like, all right, I already know my idea. I know what I'm going to do. I just need to get the approval of like my teacher and just start executing. And that's kind of, so I would say like about a year or so is like okay, usually so, so a like decent a amount of time. Five minute, 10 minute animations. Like it's, it's like as much work as it yeah. <laughs> looks like. To be. So, okay. And it's also uh, just mm -hmm. me doing it, but usually in the, traditional industry setting you have a lot of people working together but student films are usually just you and maybe less than five people helping wow that's crazy that is really crazy because yeah. like your animations look like like pebbles look i was like oh this is like a disney movie <laughs> well oh okay so so you're you're working you're working full-time as an as a assistant director your you got your youtube your instagram comics <laughs> writing and promoting your book your gumroad your etsy like What's your advice for a creator out there on how to manage like their time, especially someone that's working full time that wants to do a, like, a side hustle? Yeah, so I would definitely say you need to allocate a time period to learn about all of these different platforms, because I think the thing about me when I started off as a revisionist or a storyboard artist with Glenn Keane Productions was I had a lot of free time just like to think about whatever I wanted. So when I was working, while I was literally storyboarding, I would just play videos about how to start a Patreon and stuff like that. And I would just take notes as I'm listening to it. And I think the thing that prevents a lot of people from getting started with these things is just not knowing how it works. And I think that causes a lot of friction with wanting to get started. But once you just do it and get started, it's like, it doesn't have to be perfect. You can refine things as you go on. Like I really didn't know much about Patreon. And for the longest time, I've just kind of left it as like a very like simple thing where I'm just like, it's just $1 for you to support me. And that's it. But it's like, I kind of did not pay much attention to it for the past few years, but I've dabbled in it enough to just know the basics and the foundations to now I'm just like able to like monetize it a lot more and just do more with it so that I can get some sort of steadiness with it per month. So 
I would say allocate just like just a weekend, like just be like for this weekend, I will watch videos about how to start these platforms that I'm interested in and just keep a little notebook with your notes about your greatest takeaways and just getting started with them. Because the thing is, some of them probably will fall off. Some of them might not work for you. But I think being able to hone down onto the things that do work for you comes with having some experience with all of them and knowing which ones don't you don't like, which ones you don't really don't benefit you. Like for me, Twitter absolutely does not benefit me at all whatsoever. So I just totally deleted my account. I don't do anything on it. And for me, it just doesn't work. And you'll find that a lot of like major, I guess, like people or published authors or artists, they aren't on all of the platforms. They just kind of chose the ones that work for them. Like not everyone that you know of has a Twitter. Not everyone you know of has a Patreon or an Etsy. A lot of artists I know have Etsys and I have one myself, but I just feel like the whole like creating product thing, like is not really my thing. So I just keep it on and just, you know, deliver products as needed, but I'm not like, oh, this is going to be my livelihood or anything like that. Got it. Got it. So it's, and, and what, what would you say would be, uh, what, what's your advice for a YouTuber? Like, let's say if I want to start a Patreon, like, cause now I'm like, I've yeah, thought about it. Now you're you like, oh, maybe I should. Like, what's your advice for getting the most out of Patreon without killing yourself with all the rewards? <laughs> cause yeah, I did a so, Kickstarter before and that was kind of crazy. <laughs> like, oh my God. so for that, Patreon, okay. I'm like, oh, that's I want to do yeah. something, but not go crazy. Yeah, that's definitely another, like, crowdfunding is another world I have not dabbled in, but yeah, it sounds very exhausting. I think with Patreon, it's just doing your best with making use of what you already have without making more. So a lot of the times, I'm just already sharing stuff that I'm already doing. Like, for you, you could definitely show, like, early access or behind the scenes or even, like, your past experience at Goldman Sachs. I feel like a lot of people would be into that stuff where they're just like, I want to know about how to break in into that stuff. And, like, even though you're kind of, like, retired from that life, I feel like you'll have a lot of knowledge that other people will want. Like, for me, I don't think my YouTube would would survive without me having a career in animation or like pursuing those things. Like if I only did YouTube, I'm just like, what would I talk about? <laughs> like, just like look at my avocado toast or something. And but it's like also everybody is making avocado toast. So what is gonna make you special from that? So that's why I like hold on to my artist identity and like that's what I'll kind of promote on Patreon. Where I opened a tier recently that is just like I'll just do email consultations for people where I will just, you know, you can ask me whatever you want about your art journey, your art career, or whatever you want. Me just giving you feedback with your artwork, because I get so many DMs and emails from people like being like, hi, Mrs. Lamb, I would love to hear about your journey as an artist for my school project. And I can't always answer those people because I don't have the time to just do these things for free. Otherwise, I could not make my book. I could not pursue my own career path. So I was like, okay, well, what if I just start monetizing this on Patreon, where I will literally give them my time and I will write essays just responding to their work. And of course, while also taking into account that I have to do this like within a certain amount of time, if I'm going to like only set a certain amount of payment for that. So I just like open that where I'm just like, just ask me whatever you want and I'll just email you. And that's just one of the more like recent like ways of you know, monetization that I've discovered that has been helpful. Sweet. So like Q&A, more personalized. Yeah. Like you just like can stalk this person and just give them advice. That's awesome. Like 
I mean, get advice if like an animator wanted to get advice from you. I think that'd be like so worth it for the Patreon. That's really yeah. cool. Like, so kind of shifting gears to like more of the mindset piece. Um, I really love how like Mish, like the whole theme of self acceptance, um, just as like for the story as a fair as a demon in a land of fairies, um, as you being like an Asian American author and and illustrator as an artist like on so many levels i love that message how did you learn how to accept yourself and part two to that is as an artist how did you learn how to decouple your self-worth from your art ah yeah so that's a really big i actually just recently made a video about this too it's called it's about like the idea of detaching yourself and i think that all artists need to learn that because it's like the downfall, the strength and downfall of every artist is that you really put your emotions and yourself into your work, which is what makes your work so great. But that is also the thing that could really tear you down. It's like for me, when you get rejection letters, it just hits so hard and you just feel so worthless. Sometimes I just don't even like to look at my book sales or I don't want to look at my statistics or analytics because I'm just like, don't remind me that I suck or anything. But the thing that helps me just detach is just finding things that I love outside of just art, which is again, why I'm like fine with just like just keeping art as like my job. And I like, I find my own hobbies and things outside of it because I feel like every time I'm too deep into my work, I will fall down harder anytime that, you know, there's some sort of failure or like things don't work out the way that I want it to. But that's the fact of life is that things are not going to always work out the way that you want it to. So you need that like separation or detachment. So for me, it's just like, in a way where viewing art as a business does kind of help, but I don't want people to just think that's like the only way to pursue art only because I think you should create art for yourself. But I just think for me and my specific path, Art has allowed me to live the life that I've constantly been making up through stories and imagination and comics. So I think like for me, treating my art as a business helps me stay detached where I'm like, all right, I'm just doing this because this is going to is what's going to help with sales, views, likes, and that's healthy to have in terms of just supporting yourself financially, but also keeping yourself like, all right, you're my work. You're not me. You're here to help me live my life kind of thing. Of course, that comes with just getting to a point in life where you're able to monetize your work too. But it's just like, there's going to be a time period where you might not be monetized, but just keep working at it so that eventually it could help you get there. Yeah. And I love how you, how you said earlier, like you're, you're the tree and your art is the branch. Yeah, like, I, I love like, that. Yeah. I'm going to think like about that a lot. You have a lot more to offer as a human outside of just the things that you make. So. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And then, so my friend Lila, her her daughter is around the age of someone that would read Mish, the Bad Demon, and uh, she's interested in art. Like, what what yeah. would be your advice for Jamie, uh, Lila's daughter, like, who's who loves, who's interested in art, loves being creative? Like, how would you determine if art is a good career for you or just like a hobby? Like, so 
I think it really depends on how you're going to approach your career. And like, I know a lot of people don't really know this when they are younger. Even I didn't, like, I had no idea I was doing this when I was a student. I thought my dream was to just be a storyboard artist working in animation. And then once it hits like 6 p.m., I can just go on Netflix and just watch stuff. That is totally not my life now. Like, I, I'm not even, I, I wish I had the time to catch up with the latest TV shows, but I think if you have a somewhat entrepreneur mindset, that can really help you, I think, go far in the world of art. I still think it's still possible to just like live a regular like nine to five job just working in animation. But I just think that your life will be a little bit more comfortable if you find ways to support yourself financially during those like gap periods of no work. Or if you, if you just wanted to take a sabbatical to just work on your passion projects, having like those additional streams of income from, you know, a side project or a YouTube channel can really help like support you living that life without being so distracted about your finances and whatnot. So if you go in with like a, the mindset of like, oh, I'm open to taking on like multiple projects, I can, you know, juggle multiple things. And I like managing my time and I like doing my own things. And I'm a self starter, then it's like, I think that you could totally rock it as an artist. But if you're someone that's just like, I just want to like do one thing and just like, but you also want to live like frivolously and just like, go on all these like trips and like, I don't know, have like an extravagant life that might be a little bit more questionable with just having a regular like animation job. But I also feel like that's a lot of jobs nowadays where a lot of people are like, I can't even afford like a regular house. And like a lot of our generation can't. But I think that's why it's just like do what you can within your control to like, if you want to live this life, and if you know, that's what you want, then maybe consider doing these other things and see what type of other things that you're willing to do and what interests you. Got it. Got it. Overall, like what for you personally, like what does success look like? I think success just looks like being content with your life and not having to, I guess like you have more good days than bad days, I guess. I don't know. It's like, I feel like a lot of artists, sometimes I just hear about them really struggling with mental health, finances, and like overall well-being. And I feel like if you're able to just have those necessities covered and you have the privilege to even like contemplate like, oh, what type of like side projects do I want to take on or what like what I don't know, you can think about these non-necessities in life. I think that's like success and just technical terms but I also think success is just being happy and just being able to be content with your life with where it's at and being content with not knowing where it might be in the future because a lot of it is uncertainty and I feel like uncertainty gets to a lot of us but finding contentment in that is like really liberating and I think if you're liberated that's successful <laughs> <laughs> boom I love it yeah. And uh, a lot of uh, people that are out there listening, they're that are like they're YouTubers or they're on Instagram. Like, mm -hmm. what's what would be your advice for someone that's starting a YouTube channel today? I would say start like now because I mean I feel like that's what everyone says, so I'm not gonna say that. But like, yes, you should start now because I do think that a lot of artists 
could be making like more money just through YouTube. Like I have friends who do teaching jobs and whatever they make there is like just a fraction of what they could be making on YouTube. So I think that you should definitely start on YouTube, but I think that when you are on YouTube, you should also be conscious about what type of information you're giving to people and be providing like some sort of like helpful advice to people and just not be doing it for yourself only because I know a lot of people are just like just start a YouTube just do whatever you want and it's like yeah that's great if you just want to start a personal channel but I do think like for me I had a time period of only making videos just for like the sake of making videos to pump out videos just because I was really busy during a certain time period of my life so I just made like speed paints and I just recorded a voiceover over it talking about whatever and it doesn't have to be like a hot topic however that didn't really serve my channel it just served what I needed to do within a certain amount of time so I think last fall I was just like okay I'm gonna redirect my channel back to like an art career or how to like you know be successful in an art career or how to you know even get started in an art career and that's when my channel started to like regrow again where I was just like oh okay I guess like making videos that help people helps get views so so it was like shifting from just doing it for you to keeping the audience in mind yeah it's again a lot of that compromise with you know, serving your audience to some degree, but hopefully it's stuff that you're interested in. Because for me, I guess I view it like, you know, you're taught, you get this chance to just talk about yourself. You're just sitting here and just talking about your life. So for me, I find that like nice in itself. So I'm just like, it's just focusing the topics of each video to what do people want to hear. So I'm like, again, fine with that. And just being like, you know, I already get to talk about whatever I want. And it's just, redirecting the focus to something else to what people want to hear i love it i love it and and do you what's your advice like you've you've killed it all you're killing it on instagram like what's your advice for someone's trying to grow their instagram i would say like honestly instagram had a really good time back in 2019 but i think like instagram is not like the best place because even though i have more followers on instagram i don't really get monetized by doing anything by posting comics whatsoever and i feel like sponsorships on instagram are not as common as they are on youtube so if you're on instagram you should yes focus on just posting your work and growing on it but i think your goal with that is to just have traffic to redirect to your YouTube or redirect to your book or redirect to your Patreon because I think Instagram is not like your focus in terms of like, this should help me live my life financially. It's going to help you with the audience that will eventually help you with, you know, your YouTube or your Patreon or your book. But I just think as of lately, Instagram is just more of a place to just have like, like, this is your Reddit. This is your community. This is your place of where you're building your community. So that should be the focus. But I think if you want to grow on it, I do think Reels helps a lot now, but also carousel posts, which is why posting comics is really great for me because I think carousel posts, you know, incentivizes people to just scroll, spend time on your page. And it tells Instagram that people like being on your page. So if you're going to post a photo, post like 10 photos of the same thing in different angles or something and make a reel of it. Like 
I really do not enjoy doing reels or TikToks, but even though they like don't get views or as many likes as my regular posts, they do attract like new people to my page. Like I could be doing nothing and just post a reel. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you have 800 new followers. I'm like, where did you guys come from? It's like, oh yeah, I posted a reel. So. All right. Well, last audience question before we move into the rapid fire. Pigeon Patrol asks, have you experienced imposter syndrome in the industry? Yes. Oh my God. It's so big. Like, especially during my first job or internship at Cartoon Network, I just felt so guilty for existing there. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I was just like, I'm just a, I'm just garbage compared to everyone else. And you just feel so much insecurity. But I think that the way that I got over it is just thinking about what I talk about other people like this. Like, once I, like, unfortunately, it does go away with time and it does go away once you get. I mean, it doesn't go away. It just lessens, but it will still exist on like a lower amount where once you get more experience and you look at new incoming artists, you ask yourself, like, would I talk about other people like this? No. Why would I talk to myself like that? Like anytime I talk about other young artists, I'm just like, first of all, they're like so much like advanced, more advanced than I was when they're, I was their age because they have so many more resources and references nowadays. And I think that, you know, the younger generations are the people that we should be helping if we want to keep this planet afloat. <laughs> so it's just like thinking about things like that, where you're just like, would I view like people younger than me like this? No. And then that kind of helped me be like, oh, then why am I thinking about myself? Like acknowledge that you're just a person that's learning and you're just doing your best and trying to learn as much as you can at the age that you're at. So yeah. I love those tips. And uh, like self-talk is so important. Thanks. Thanks for mm-hmm. sharing that. I think we all yeah. go through that. I know. So, uh, ra- <laughs> yeah. so rapid fire. What's your favorite piece of gear for your for your creative in your creative toolkit? Probably my iPad Pro. <laughs> and favorite software for for drawing, illustrating? I would say right now it's Clip Studio Paint. Favorite book you read last year? Oh my God, last year. I would say I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. Mm. And favorite <laughs> favorite course, online course you've taken? Oh my God, I haven't taken if a any. course in so long. Okay, well, I will say if I did take any course, it's probably from like some... Oh, okay. I downloaded this course about how to travel Peru (laughs) because I was so obsessed with wanting to travel to Peru that like there was this like video from like Lost LeBlanc about like, this this is how you travel Peru. And I was like, I really need to know all the insider tips. And I downloaded it because I was just like, I just really need to know how to best travel this country. So (laughs) love it. And if your house was burning down, assuming everyone's safe, what three things would you grab? Oh my God. Okay. I would grab my iMac. I would grab my phone. Do my cats count as one or two? (laughs) Uh, let's, Let's assume they're included with the people are safe. Okay, fine, fine. So I would grab my Mac, my iMac. I would grab my phone and then I would grab my USB drive. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's so it's like, yeah, it's all got everything on it. I and know. um, if you could jump into a time machine and go to any time and place in history for 30 minutes, who would you talk to? Oh my God. Okay. I guess I would go back to I think I would go back to 
you know, my roots, my family is from Hong Kong, but they're like, I don't know, somewhere from Southern China. I would go back to maybe the 1700s and just be like, what's a day in the life like in your life? Because I don't have much access to my family history beyond just like my grandparents. And a lot of stuff beyond them is like undocumented and I don't know anything. And I feel like that's like sometimes a missing link between me and like, where's my family from? I don't even know. So that that would be a cool YouTube video. <laughs> Dream Honestly, YouTube. yeah. Dream and it's like, it's like also inspiration for like how I want to like, you know, showcase my family or like do art in the future or just like even like talk about myself as an artist and where I'm from. I'm just like, I don't know. My family came from Hong Kong. That's like the most recent information I know. What has been one of your favorite comments that you've gotten YouTube, uh, social, on Instagram? Comments. Type of I comment think one that- of my favorite comments is probably whenever okay this is this kind might be kind of morbid it's weird but so last year my dog passed away and I like made a comic about it to like just vent my emotions but I think like just having that it's not like a single comment it's just everyone kind of chipped in their story about their emotions dealing with loss or dealing with like pet grief or pet loss and it was just like the most comforting and inspiring thing where I feel like we were all in this like phase of hatred towards social media where we're like I hate Instagram I hate YouTube blah 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 but I was like but you know what during times like these I feel like the internet does offer a sense of community when like you someone goes through something that hard you get access to so many other people who went through a similar rough time and are able to like we, we could I don't even know who these people are but we are all sharing the same feeling and that just was like mind-blowing to me oh, I love that you found like yeah common connection with people that you don't yeah yeah, that. it's like rough. <laughs> Wrapping everything up for that one person out there listening today, what is one thing that you hope they take away from this whole conversation? Well, I hope that people who watch this just know that there are options out there and you don't have to just bind yourself to one thing in life. I feel like a lot of people are always like, Michelle, how are you juggling all of these things? And it's like, well, there's a part of me that wants to. Like, why would I? I wouldn't be doing these things because I don't want to. It's I have enjoyment in just like having options for myself, knowing that when this thing is not working out, I have this or I have something to fall back onto. And that eases myself of any distractions from like, like, yes, I still have bad days and I have moments where I'm unhappy in life, but I feel like those types of emotions are just lessened because I feel like I have a way out of different things. So I would encourage you to just explore what are different things you like doing in life beyond just like, I don't know, even if it's not a job, it could just be a hobby or something like that. And just be open to exploring multiple things about yourself instead of just one i love it i love it and just um if anyone wants to connect with you learn about your work i know like like mish the bad demon it's on amazon it's on your like different sites uh you have your patreon your youtube your instagram um yeah what's what's the best way for people to connect with you and just see more of your work um, yeah, so you can check me out on my YouTube, which is known as Mew Tripled. It's a weird username that I thought of when I was 11. And now I'm stuck with it. Or check out my Instagram also Mew Tripled. All right. And w- is is Amazon the best place to find Mish? 
Yes. So Amazon is one of the top places most people might be able to find niche, but it's also at Barnes and Nobles. It's on Walmart. There's like other stores, I guess, available or even your local bookstore. They might have it too. So really? Wait, you can get this at Barnes and Nobles? Yeah. I I went to like different like Barnes and Nobles after Mish was released and I was just like taking pictures with all of them. So yeah, go check out your local bookstore and maybe even your local library. Thank you so much, Michelle. Really appreciate you coming on and just just sharing all your perspective and advice. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Thanks a lot for listening to The Inner Creator with Peter Sue. If you're enjoying our podcast, please show us your support by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you want more creator and business tips, be sure to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash petersue and follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Peter J. Sue. Keep creating from the inside out and have an awesome day.